The sermon text this morning is taken from the first chapter of 1 Timothy, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength for this, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service. Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the foremost of sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, today, we are focusing on truth number five, which is the very heart of the gospel. And in order to understand truth number five, which is at the top of the third panel here inside, you really need to know something about these first four truths. In a sense, the first four truths are not the gospel. They are the necessary prerequisites for understanding the gospel. It's not necessarily good news to tell anybody you're a sinner. But it is, in a sense, if the diagnosis of a disease is as important as the prescription. At any rate, these four truths at the beginning are necessary to understand the full impact of the fifth truth. So I want to review them briefly with you. Truth number one was that God created us for his glory. This is God's design. He meant when he created man and woman and every one of us here that his glory, his beauty, his honor, his power, his wisdom, his justice, all of his manifold perfections would be displayed in the world through our behavior, through our attitudes, through our words. We are to be like prisms or like crystals or like mirrors that reflect the glory of God to the world. The second truth is that every one of us, therefore, should make it our highest priority, our life goal, to live for the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do it all for God's glory. God should be the central reality in our lives. Everything we we do should be done with, with a view to God, magnifying His honor and His worth and His glory. That affects everything we do and how we do it. The third truth is every one of us in this room and every person on this planet who has ever lived except one, Jesus Christ, failed, has failed, still fails in this regard. We are lukewarm much of the time and therefore bring great dishonor upon the infinitely worthy glory of God that is worthy of a white-hot intensity of affection and obedience. We don't thank Him. We don't love Him. We don't obey Him. We don't trust Him anywhere near the way we should, the way He deserves because of His infinite worth and glory and beauty. And therefore, the fourth truth We are under his just condemnation. God is righteous. And his righteousness is his commitment to uphold the worth of his glory. Therefore, 
since we have desecrated the glory of God, trample it in the dirt through our unbelief and our indifference and our negligence and our disobedience and our ingratitude, every day, His righteousness commits Him to oppose us. A just condemnation hangs over the head of every human being and God will sentence us all to hell in the end if we do not find a way of escape because he's holy and he's righteous and he is committed to upholding the worth of his glory. I got a letter from John Genstadt this week. Uh, He's in Suriname with Wycliffe. Bible translators and uh, I love to communicate with John because he fires me up so much and he has a great sense of what he's about there and he said just one sentence rings in my ears from that letter being human is truly an awesome thing and you, if you just stop at the end of these four truths and let them just sink in If you give them just a millimeter of truth in your heart, you will see that being human is an awesome thing. Created for his glory, destined to live for his glory, failing utterly and under the everlasting condemnation of an infinite creator is an awesome thing. Now, truth number five is the essence of the gospel. And it answers perfectly in God's wisdom and love to the need that is created by the first four truths. And I hope that you see that the great danger at the end of the first four truths, the great danger that the human race faces today is not nuclear war. It's not AIDS. It's not environmental catastrophes. It's not crime. It's not racial strife. The greatest danger that we're exposed to is the wrath of God. Everything else pales in comparison to an omnipotent God opposing us with his wrath. That's the greatest danger that humans must find an escape for or we're undone. And that's the question that truth number five answers for us. God sent his only son, Jesus, to provide eternal life. And I quote 1 Timothy 1.15, Mike read, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. God could have cut it off at number four and been righteous and left us in our sin and condemnation, but he didn't. And what I want to try to do this morning is make clear as clear as I can, how Jesus saves sinners. So I'd invite you to turn to a text with me, namely Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. 
Let me remind you that what we're focusing on this morning is not what you must do to be saved. That's next Sunday. What we're focusing on this morning is what God did to save you. That's the most important thing. I believe that once you see that clearly and it hits home to you the awesome reality of the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what that accomplished for sinners, I believe that you will be moved to receive and to embrace that truth for yourself. This is a beautiful passage here in Romans 5, 6 to 8. Let me read it for you. While we were yet helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will even dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now notice three things in this little passage. First, the way Jesus saves sinners is by dying for sinners. Let's not take that for granted. I can't take anything for granted anymore. The way Jesus came into the world to save sinners, as it says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The way he did that was he came to die for sinners. You see that right there? Christ died for the ungodly. The second thing to see in these verses is that you and I, nor any other human being, did not initiate this act of mercy. We didn't improve upon ourselves so that God said, oh, well, maybe they're not so bad. I'll do something to help them. Notice that the verse says very plainly, in fact, it uses three words to get this across. It says, we were still helpless. Then it says we were ungodly. Then it says we were sinners. And all of that was still true of us when God engaged his son to enter the world to save us. Third thing to notice from this text is that the death of Christ is a demonstration of God's love for us. God's love. Verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the reason I point that out is because it might, I might otherwise give you the impression that God the Father is a judge and he is wrathful toward us and condemnation hangs over our head. But the Son of God is merciful toward us and he's trying to save us from his mean father. That would be a terrible misunderstanding. Because this verse makes it very plain, this verse 8, that when he sends the Son, the Son is in no way bending the arm of the Father or constraining the Father to do what he's disinclined to do. The Father chooses to save sinners from his own wrath. And he does it by the sending of his only beloved Son. He is our judge. We are under his condemnation, but that's not the whole story about this awesome God. There is a heart of great love and great mercy that designs a way of deliverance for sinners, sends his son into the world to bear sin, 
and allow men to escape from his own wrath. So God both has wrath and he has love. And his son is the solution between the two. Now, the question I want to ask and then try to answer in three steps is this. How did the death of Jesus save sinners? How does the death of Jesus save sinners? Let me try to give three biblical answers to that. And my prayer as I do this is that your heart would just be won over to this awesomely loving and very righteous God and His Son. The first answer to how the death of Jesus saves sinners is that the death of Jesus is a ransom. That's the key word. A ransom for many. Let me give you some passages of scripture that show this. Mark 10.45 For the Son of Man also came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1.18 you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 6.19 You are not your own, you were bought. Same idea as ransom. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And finally, Revelation 5.9 Thou wast slain, O Lord, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So one way to understand the death of Jesus and how it saves sinners is that a ransom was paid. Now, big question arises, I'll bet, in your mind. I hope it does. I think it's a natural and legitimate question. Namely, to whom was the ransom paid? I, I say it's legitimate even though I don't think the Bible asked the question. The Bible does not ask that question. And so it might be a little bit risky to try to answer it, but I don't think it's very risky. Let me try to answer it and show you why I don't think we're out on a limb here. Two answers have been given. They're the, the reasonable ones to suggest. He paid it to Satan, who was holding us hostage, or... He paid it to himself. Now, let me give you three or four reasons for why I don't think he paid it to Satan and why I think it would be a dishonor to his name to say that he paid a, a ransom to Satan. First, it would be contrary to God's sovereignty that he would have to meet the demands of his archenemy. Second, it would be contrary to God's holiness if he were to allow the arch-evil one to dictate the terms of salvation. Third, and this may be the, the most textually clear one, if you go back to the Gospel of Mark or Matthew or Luke and ask how did Jesus liberate people from Satan's bondage? You remember the story in Mark 3, 27? It says, he binds the strong man and plunders his household. Now, that's a very different image, isn't it, than negotiating with a terrorist to whom you then give in and pay a ransom. He doesn't do that with Satan. He invades, he binds, he delivers. 
No ransom paid to Satan. No dealings with the arch enemy. And uh, a person just gave me a note at the end of the last service and said, here's a fourth possible reason you could give. Namely, Satan's a liar from the beginning. And God would never negotiate with a person who is utterly and totally untrustworthy. At any rate, I think those are enough reasons to say that's out of the question. He is not negotiating with Satan to ransom us from Satan's bondage. I think he paid the ransom to himself in this sense. If you ask, what happened when I sinned against God? The answer is, you came under a tremendous debt of his glory. You have tore down his glory, and I have tore down his glory so low and walked it in the mud so often that I am in infinite debt to his honor. There is a recompense that needs to be paid. Something needs to be made right here. His dignity has been so besmirched and his honor so belittled that something's got to be done to make this right. And to call that a debt is very appropriate. And to think of the ransom that was paid by the blood of Jesus as the restoration of that glory and the paying of that debt is very biblical. And so even though the Bible doesn't talk explicitly about to whom the debt or the ransom was paid, I would argue that the most fitting answer from all that we see in Scripture is that God ransomed us from his own offended glory. The second way to understand the death of Christ is by seeing it as a substitution. First, when Christ died, he ransomed sinners. Second, when Christ died, he became a substitute for sinners. Now, in order to understand that, you just need to remember that there's a curse hanging over us because of our sin and that we have sins yet weighing us down, ready to cast us into hell. And that the idea of a substitute is that this curse, which is from the law, cursed, are we for our sin, has to stay in force. And so Christ comes and, as it were, pushes us out from under the curse and allows it to rest upon himself. And he pushes us out from under our sin and he takes that upon himself. Now let me read you passages of scripture that show the substitutionary dimension of the death of Jesus. First, first Peter 3:18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. There it is. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in a sense you've got a double substitution. He becomes the sinner though he knew no sin and so all of our sin is put upon him 
And we become the righteous. So that though we were sinners, His righteousness is put upon us. That's the glory of justification through the death of Jesus. We are acquitted, and not only acquitted of our guilt, but clothed with an alien righteousness that didn't really belong to us in the first place, but now is granted to us through Jesus Christ, because He gave it up for us when He took our sin upon Him at Calvary. And one last verse on this point. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And so the curse is in force. It must be there. And yet, God wills salvation. And therefore, in willing both the curse and the salvation, the only solution was a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus' his only son bearing the curse for us. So he saves by ransoming and he saves by substituting his son. Now the last way to understand how the death of Christ saves sinners is this. It vindicates the glory or the righteousness of God. It vindicates the righteousness of God. And the word vindicate just means demonstrate, show to me, true and right and real. I think this is the most neglected truth about the cross today. At least I don't see it emphasized very much. And I think the reason this idea of what happened at the cross is neglected is because these truths are neglected. Right here. Truth one and two. Unless you begin with the glory of God as our destiny and realize that this is what we're to live for and that this is what we've fallen short of then you don't realize that the number one problem that has to be solved for us human beings is the fact that we have heaped scorn upon the glory of God something has to happen so that when God in His free grace save sinners, it doesn't look as though he is careless about his glory. If God were to just sweep sin under the rug of the universe and say, oh, it doesn't matter that they've trampled my glory in the dirt. That's okay. I just forgive sinners. That would be an outrage in the universe. The moral structure of the universe would collapse if God disregarded his righteousness. So, something had to happen by which we could both be saved as sinners and God's righteousness be vindicated in salvation. Now, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3 and I'll show you the two verses that make very plain what the answer to this problem is. Romans 3, verses 25 and 26, answer the question of how the glory of God was vindicated in the salvation of sinners. Verse 25 sort of begins in the middle of a sentence, but it says, Whom, that is Jesus, God put forward as an expiation or propitiation or atoning sacrifice by his blood. In other words, he put him forward to die 
to be received by faith. Then here comes the key sentence. This was to show, or you could substitute the word vindicate or demonstrate, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to prove, you could substitute again, vindicate or show or demonstrate, prove at the present time that he is himself he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Now notice, Jesus Christ is put forward by the Father to vindicate his righteousness, to show it to be real, strong, unimpugned, unquestioned. And the question you should ask is, well, what had brought the righteousness of God into question? Why did it need a public vindication anyway? I mean, doesn't everybody know that God is righteous? The answer is given very plainly in verse 25, why there needed to be a public vindication of God's righteousness. Namely, it says, because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. Do you see the problem? When a holy righteous God just passes over sins that had brought his glory to the, to the mud. That's terrible! You would not let any judge stay on the bench in this city who did that. Just let them go. Let rapists go. Let murderers go. Let robbers go. Let them go. You would say, outrageous, unrighteous, injustice. And that's what God did to David and you and me. How then is he not unrighteous? That's why Jesus had to die. This text says... In order to demonstrate that in letting sin go, he's not indifferent to his glory. He's not indifferent to his worth. He's not indifferent to his righteousness. On the contrary, he did the ultimate that he could do. He put his own son to death to demonstrate his hatred for sin and his hatred for the dishonor that had been brought upon his name. Jesus Christ died most fundamentally to vindicate the glory of God which is called into question every time he forgives your sin which he does in Jesus Christ every day as you believe in him. So let me summarize where we've been on these three points. The question we're asking is how does the death of Jesus save sinners? And we've seen three biblical answers. One, by ransoming them. That is, repaying the debt that we owe to God for how we have dishonored Him through a ransom. Second, by substituting His Son for us so that our sin falls on Him and His curse falls on His own Son. And third, 
by vindicating the righteousness of God and demonstrating publicly for all the principalities and powers and all the peoples of the earth to see that when God justifies a sinner, acquits the guilty, welcomes us into his everlasting kingdom, he is not indifferent to the scorn that we have brought upon his name. He settles it in Jesus. He vindicates his glory and his righteousness by giving his son. My prayer for you now as we close the service is two things. One, that what I've said will be clear. I hope nobody will ever be able to say after being here today, well, I just don't understand the gospel. I don't understand what happened when Jesus died. I just hope that you won't be able to say that now. And I've prayed that God would make it clear to you that a provision has been made for salvation. Christ died for sinners. And the second thing I want to pray and have been praying with you is that it would not only be clear, but it would be compelling to you this morning. That when you look at Jesus being ransomed, or being the ransom, and when you look at him substituting himself for sinners, and when you look at him vindicating the glory of God, something will so deeply click in your heart that it will say, that's exactly what I need. And there is nothing but that in all the universe that matches my need. Because I have felt deep, late at night, that I am not right with God. That the wrath of God is against me for my sin. And I wondered how in the world I would ever escape. And that makes perfect sense. That this provision will work. I'd like you to bow in prayer. and Those of you who have never committed yourself to Jesus Christ in faith. And have tasted the acquittal and the justification of God, the forgiveness of your sins, to pray right now that great sinner's prayer of acknowledging your sin before the Lord, of confessing that He and He alone is the way of salvation through His death on the cross, of a turning from sin and a renouncing of all dependence upon self and commitment to the ways of the world and a giving of yourself over in faith to Jesus. And I would just like to invite you, if you want, before God and before me, with my eyes open and the rest of our eyes closed, to just raise your hand that you're doing that right now and are committing yourself decisively to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Does anybody want to raise your hand and say that to Him and to me? Thank you. All right, we're going to close now. I saw two hands, and I thank the Lord for those two hands. And I'm sorry if I missed any others, but the Lord has seen. And our prayer now together, and your prayer should be, that God would just deeply confirm in your own heart this decision to follow Him as Lord and to trust in His Son.
Lord, I ask that you would drive this commitment deep into the heart. And if any have made the decision in their own heart and didn't raise their hand, confirm that to them and may they express it to us and seek help in this matter. Let's stand for a closing prayer. I praise you, God, for your Son, Jesus Christ. Nothing meets our need in the hour of our death or in the hour of our guilty life like a crucified Savior. We bless you together that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And we bless you that you loved us and sent him to die for us. And I pray that this gospel truth of the ransom of the Son, the substitution of the Son, and the vindication of your glory through the Son would so grip us and so stabilize us that we would be strong in our warfare against Satan, knowing that you have settled it for us at Calvary. And all the people said, Amen.